The following audio is from The Well. We are a church that is committed to gospel growth, family formation, and missional engagement in Hastings, Nebraska. More information about The Well can be found at www.thewellhastings.com. We hope the message you are about to hear will spur you on to growing in the gospel of Jesus Christ, to be formed as a follower of Jesus, and to be engaged in the mission of Jesus to seek and to save the lost within the yard of hell. We're going to be in Acts chapter 11. We're going to be looking at verses 19 through 30 this morning. I just want to dive right in. Uh, beginning in verse 19, let me read. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So this is the word of God for the people of God this morning. Amen. Amen. Would you join me in prayer? I want to ask God to to bless our time. Father, Lord, we come before you this morning uh, recognizing that we are sinful and broken people living in the midst of a sinful and broken world. And yet you are God. You are faithful. You're merciful. You're gracious. You're loving, you're kind, you're just. And so God, uh, we come before you and we ask uh, that you would invade our space this morning and speak to us. Help our hearts and our minds to not just hear and listen, (coughs) but to desire, um, to joyfully desire to hear and to listen, to have you speak to us. Help us to know what it means to live in the midst of a a sin-soaked world um, as Christians. Help us to wrestle with what that means, what that looks like. God, most of all, lead us to the foot of a bloody cross in the doorway of an empty tomb. Um, Instill within us, again, a fresh and new hope that we have in eternity. We trust you with this. In Jesus' name, And everybody said? Amen. Amen. Say, y'all, the passage that we're looking at um, really describes how the gospel itself um, advanced 
um, into the city of Antioch. Verse 26 tells us that this is where the disciples were first called Christians. Okay? Now, at first glance, when you read this passage, it can be kind of easy to miss the significance of what is taking place at this specific moment in church history. But if you do some research, you do some study, um, what you will find is this. You will find that the city of Antioch um, in that day is basically the Las Vegas of the Middle East. So let that sink in for a minute, okay? The image of that. The city of Antioch was basically the Las Vegas of the Middle East during the time in which we are studying. Some things about Antioch that would help you to wrap your mind around this is Antioch was the, uh, the third largest city in the known world at that time. Okay? Uh, it was comprised of at least five different ethnic cultures, so it was kind of a melting pot. Um, it was known for its uh, over-the-top depravity. It was full of pagan idol worship, uh, which means they would um, even include the use of uh, what they would call ritual temple prostitution. Um, don't need to describe that. Um, and, and on top of all that, in the city of Antioch, um, if you were to try to, t- if you were to try to imagine the church population in that city. roughly a seventh of the population were known to be godly Jews. A seventh. Okay? Not very many at all. So Antioch, um, when you think about it, it pretty much was one of the dirtiest places on the known earth at the time. Um, And I think it would seem as though it was probably one of the very last places uh, that any religious person would go to, especially when you think about the percentage of the population that were disciples of Jesus, okay? When you think about different portions of the world that Christians may want to uh, live in, you think of areas like the Bible Belt, right? Where there's a church on every street corner competing with the church across the street corner from it. Um, that might be. Or if you think of Colorado and, you're, and you, you think, well, I want to live in a place that is maybe full of other believers, you might go to a place like Colorado Springs, um, you may not want to live in a place like, say, Denver or, um, or Boulder. Um, just two starkly different cultures. Um, and so when you think about that, and you think about the population in Antioch, you think about the gospel being advanced into one of the darkest, dirtiest places on the known earth. That's the context in which we are studying. But you think about it, this specific place, Antioch, sin city of the Middle East. This is the place where God chose to have his disciples named as Christians. God didn't start that in the Bible Belt. He didn't start that in in a population that was primarily Christian. He started it in an area that was like the dirtiest corner of the earth. Okay? It was in that place that God chose to have his disciples named after himself by that very culture. So think about that. Let it sink in for a minute. It was in the darkest and dirtiest corner of the earth that something was so radically different about this little tiny cultural subset of early disciples. Okay, they they didn't legitimately have authority in the public. 
or in politics or in the, in, the, in the public square necessarily. They weren't highly influential necessarily at this point. They were this tiny little subset of early disciples. And in that place, that putrid culture that they lived in actually decided and chose to name them after the Messiah that they followed. So see, this little tiny subset of believers, these, these disciples, the seventh of the population, they had so impacted the filthy culture that they lived in that they received a name from that dirty culture. Okay? And they called them Christians. You've got to ask yourself, why did this happen this way? Why, why did this happen here? How did this happen? Now, if you were to ask someone in America about what it means to be Christian, you can search this on YouTube and find some really good videos of guys doing like street corner questioning. But if you were to ask someone in America what it means to be a Christian, you would most likely get a hundred different conflicting answers. Okay. Now, if you ask someone in a third world country, a different question, ask them what it means to be an American, you know what they'll answer you with? they will most likely tell you that to be an American is to be a Christian. Being a Christian, at the time that our text was written, actually meant something. And it actually meant something that was worth dying for. Many of them did in the centuries to follow. But today, today the term Christian has been so watered down to mean nothing more than a few things. Um, that kind of rise to the top of the list when you look at the hundred different answers from some of the videos that, that I think very reputable Christian ministries have put out. <clears throat> the term Christian has been watered down to mean really nothing more at times than a national identity or a political ideology or an identity that is based upon religious preferences during the holidays. Okay? Uh, the challenge, I think, in front of us when you think about all of this when you think about what was happening in the text and you think about what's happening in our day, what we're living in, the challenge in front of us is to think about what it actually means to be a Christian in the cultural context that we live in. Now, it is true that the Las Vegas of our time, um, show of hands, anybody who's been there? There's a few of us. The Las Vegas of our time is definitely a melting pot of cultural darkness, okay? We know that. Um, it's definitely a dirty place. Uh, Christy and I, my wife and I, went there uh, last year uh, for our 20th anniversary. And, and to be honest, it was an absolute blast, man. We had fun. I don't know if we're going to go back for another 10 years or not. Uh, we, we enjoy things like riding our motorcycles through hills <laughs> more than that necessarily. But it was fun to an extent. Um, but at the same time, it was a bit alarming, too, okay? We, we experienced some things. We saw some things that I will not elaborate on here um, that was definitely a little bit alarming, right? Um, and I'm sure you can imagine if you've never been there. And the question that I kept, uh, like, finding myself asking um, during that time there, and even since we visited Vegas, was... Like, what would it look like to actually live here or live there as a believer? Like, if you were just submersed in that culture, what would it look like to actually live there? And as I've thought about that um, now for almost a year, um, I began to wrestle with some realities. 
here's some realities. You don't have to live in Vegas um, to know that we live in cities and towns and cultures that are soaked with sin, right? Um, we, we inevitably live within some of those shocking realities of a sin city just like Vegas. And, and so the question becomes, as we're looking at this text, what did it look like to be a Christian in the sin city of Antioch? And, and how should we then be challenged to be Christians in the sin cities of America, right? Uh, and the short and simple answer, if you think about the text that we just read, the short and simple answer is that we are called to be about the business of advancing the gospel. And that is our, our core identity as Christians is to advance the gospel. The point of the gospel is not do more work to be better for Jesus or do more work to please God more. Advancing the gospel means to advance the message of Jesus, right? The gospel of Jesus, crucified, risen, and returning. And that message is meant to be spoken. It's meant to be preached. It's meant to be proclaimed. The gospel was never meant uh, to produce little huddles of so-called sanctified saints, right? Huddled up in their basements, in their little bunkers, making war against the culture around them hiding out in their church buildings once or twice a week while avoiding the culture around them. That, that was never the point of what it means to follow God. The gospel is meant to be spoken. It's meant to be spoken throughout the sin cities that we do life in. And when you think about this, the first thing that you find in the text about speaking the gospel is that the gospel is meant to be spoken to all people, Right? It's meant to be spoken to all people regardless of cultural differences, regardless of the cultural darknesses. There's literally no place, when you think about the message of the gospel, the message of Jesus, there's literally no place on earth that Jesus was unwilling to go to. <coughs> so that's why I say the first thing that we learn is we must speak the gospel to all people. If you look at verses 19 through 21, what do you see? You see, the disciples are being scattered all over the known world. Why? Being scattered because of Stephen's persecution, right? Back in chapter 7. That's where, that was the lightning rod that kind of set off the advancement of the gospel. So when you think about that, <coughs> we oftentimes think that we're going to set off the advancement of the gospel. We're going to have a big old stinking revival because we had this famous preacher come in. We got all of our ducks in a row, or we, we had the best food trucks, right, and, uh, or whatever it may be. We put on the best programs. That's an American mindset. The reality is when God starts revivals that advance the gospel, you know how he does it? Persecution, hardship, death, bumps and bruises. That's how he does it. It's countercultural to the American mindset that we've been raised with in the Western church. So it began with Stephen's persecution back in chapter 7. <clears throat> and as the disciples are being scattered, what do they do? Well, they take the message of the gospel with them, right? And while some of them, the text tells us, speak the gospel uh, only to their fellow Jews, there are plenty of others that begin to speak the gospel to the Gentiles. And what they're doing is they're simply following in Peter's footsteps from the chapters we previously studied. And the result of that gospel being spoken to all people is what? Well, verse 21 tells us that the hand of the Lord was with them, 
And what's the result? A great number of people believed and turned to the Lord, not because of their great fireworks, not because of their great events, not because of their necessarily famous preachers, but simply because disciples were being faithful to speak the gospel of the crucified, risen, and returning Savior. See, the point of this section of our text is this. That the early disciples didn't try to confine the gospel to their little inner circle in their own little denominations and church buildings and whatnot. They literally began to see the, that the gospel was for all people. Now, you think about that realization. That realization would later lead the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 9 to say this, it's a passage that I've always held dear to my heart, and it led him to say that he had become all things to all people, that by all means, catch all the alls, that by all means he might be able to save a few by speaking the gospel to everyone. In that chapter, he then lists out what he kind of means in shorthand form of the all people, the all people for him, he says the Jews, and law-abiding citizens, and outlaws, and those who lived in a particular set of weaknesses. This is my mission field, he says. The moral of the story is that the Apostle Paul understood that we must speak the gospel to all people, regardless of the cultural barriers that we often encounter. So I would encourage you, as I did last week, and I know last week's sermon was pretty specific, right? For those of you that heard that, get out of your comfort zones, find somebody in this room that's different than you, invite them over to your house and become friends. Be friendly. That's not actually like a mind blower. It's kind of like, oh, oh yeah, yeah, we probably should be friendly with one another. Duh. It's just nice to get a reminder, right? So really this, you know, that, that, that challenge kind of flows into this week a little bit, doesn't it? If you're going to try to apply this first point to your life a little bit, then what I would encourage you to do is begin making friends with people who are very different than you. Spend intentional time with them. Catch the word, intentional. Practice a humilitative posture. Catch that, humilitative, meaning teachable. Ask good questions about their lives. Okay? A learn what gets those folks out of bed in the morning, what they're passionate about what they love, what, what, what gets them going. And come to understand also what frustrates them and what hardships they're facing. Ask the Spirit of God to show you specific ways that you can pray for them and minister to them and serve them and come alongside those newfound friends. Be slow to speak. Be quick to listen. Be slow to anger. Don't just walk in with your Romans road to salvation and do your checkpoints from A to Z, and walk out and say, well, I presented the gospel, it's on them now. Sure, that may produce some fruit. But I don't, I don't think that that is the primary method by which God spreads the gospel through his people. I think relationships are key. Speak often in that context of your love for Jesus. Testify to what he's done for you. Testify to what he's doing in you. And how about this? When you make these friends, don't make your newfound friends into some kind of evangelism project. Does anybody know what it's like to feel like a project? Okay. Those of us that are married know what this is like, don't we? 
okay? It doesn't matter what side of the fence you're on, whether you're husband or your wife, you know at some point when your spouse has made you into a project and they're trying to fix something in you, okay? Now, you don't have to be married to understand that either. All you have to do is be a friend to someone to know that at some point you turned that friend into your project or that friend turned you into their project. Don't do that. Don't make them into an evangelism project. Nobody likes to be a project. Here's what everyone does like. Everyone likes to have a very good friend who actually genuinely loves them, right? And doesn't walk into the room with a checklist of, this is what I need to fix about you. Like, I wish you brushed your hair. I wish you brushed your teeth. I wish you showed up to church on time. I wish you would tithe a little bit more. I wish you would actually follow Jesus. Like, if somebody feels like that's your presence in the room with them, you will not lead them to Jesus. You might chase them away from Jesus. Good illustration might be, um, and you might have to ask my wife, uh, the author of the book and the name of the book, but there is a book that she has about a lady who struggled in the LGBTQ community, um, meaning she, she was either active or very tempted in that way, and then she began to follow Jesus. Um, she repented, um, walked away from that. God just really radically transformed her life. And, and some, I think somebody basically asked her, I think she writes this in her book, somebody asked her, they're like, what, what, what was it that helped to like, attract you to Jesus? She was like, you know, a Christian friends who just came alongside me and didn't make that one thing the single thing, like somehow my relationship with you is based upon me trying to change this one single thing in your life. Um, she said that was one of the things that, that was attractive to her. Because here's the reality. We talk about like pimples on the face when you're looking in the mirror. And it's like, hey, you should probably take care of that. And some people just really don't know that's there. Or they know that's there. And they really just don't want you always putting your finger on it because it hurts. And practically, it might be a lot better for you to spend some time somewhere else and ask the Spirit of God what he wants to work on right now. Because the reality is, the Spirit of God, when He comes into our lives and begins drawing us to Him, and if He were to like dump the whole truckload of our sins on us and say, deal with all this, we'd be crushed, okay? And so the thing that I love about the Spirit of God is that He has His own very wise ways of working out that process of drawing us to our Father for salvation, drawing us to believe in Jesus and, and part of that process is other believers being placed in our lives to help move us that direction and share the gospel, right? But also to be sensitive and be merciful and be gracious, be truthful about what sin is and why we need salvation. Absolutely, yes. But not to make somebody into a project to change the one glaring thing you see in their life. Very, very, I think, important in terms of building these relationships. So speak often of your love for Jesus, right? Um, speak often of what he's doing in you, what he's done in you. Testify truthfully to what God's doing in you. Don't make them an evangelism project. Be a friend who genuinely loves and genuinely cares. Earn the right to be heard. Earn the right to be heard. And then speak the gospel with gentleness and respect as the scriptures say. Give an answer for the hope that lies within you with gentleness and respect. Not being combative. We love to be combative. 
And the result, here's the result. The result just might be the same as this text. You might join the ranks of the kind of Christian who actually leads people to believe upon the name of Jesus for salvation. When you, when you do an evangelism study and you think about the American church and the amount of people that so-called Christians in America today actually lead to Jesus, you would be shocked. Maybe you wouldn't be so shocked because maybe you're like, I don't know if I've ever led anybody to Jesus. I don't want to heap on too much shame or guilt in this. But I do hope that just thinking about that, letting us be reminded that the Great Commission and sharing the gospel, speaking the gospel is important. And yes, there's good books that will help you learn how to do that. But then you have to dive into the messiness of relationships and just do it, you know, carefully, winsomely, wisely, as well as humilitively. Like, I don't have all the answers. It's okay sometimes when an unbeliever asks you, hey, what about this? I don't know. Here's my pastor's number. Don't do that. You can call me and be like, how do I answer this question? And I can equip you to answer the question. That would be so much better. That's a fulfillment of rules, right? That's a good pattern. And <laughs> hey, let me just bring you to church on Sunday. I don't want everyone to try to answer that. He'll answer that eventually. Just wait for like four or five <clears throat> weeks. I know he'll say it. Go find out the answer. You know, <laughs> I could speak on this point forever because evangelism is so hardwired into my 20-some years of following Jesus. You know my story at all, and you know how we engage ministry. You know, like this is, I'm passionate about this. And I would love to see a church that is absolutely on fire sharing the gospel with people around you in ways that are fruitful. I'd love to hear stories about when people say, hey, now I've just been in this relationship with this dude or this gal for like six months, and they were like resisting Jesus, but we just became friends, and then suddenly they started coming to church. We started reading the Bible together outside of church, and then suddenly they said yes to Jesus. Now they're taking communion. We need to get them baptized. Don't. <laughs> I love those stories. Why? Because I think all of heaven goes crazy every time a, a sinner is transformed into a saint. And if you've never experienced that, can I just tell you, man, it's one of the, it's one of the most awesomest things to be part of, to see it happen. And those moments are moments that I cherish. Not just in ministry, but just in my life, period. Like, to know there's a spiritual lineage, so to speak, following behind me that God has given me just because I was like, well, I'm just kind of crazy enough to try this, see what happens. And trust that God's going to give me the right words to speak in the moment. Some of you know that, right? You know how exciting that is when you've been laboring alongside of somebody and then suddenly that moment happens and they are transformed by the renewing of their mind as the Spirit does that work and they become believers. It's powerful. It's powerful. So we must speak the gospel um, to all people. I have to move on because I've run that point out for all it's worth and could talk about it for five more days. If you want some books on it, I got them on my shelf downstairs. If you uh, like snakes, then you can go down there and find them. I'm kidding. No, actually, I'm not kidding. Point two. <laughs> we must speak the gospel with our lives. Everybody go, yeah. Yes, now we spoke it with our words to everyone. Now we're going to talk about speaking it with our lives, and everybody wants to leave, right? Okay, I get it. Must speak the gospel with our lives. You look at verses 22 through 24, and what do you learn? You learn that the church in Jerusalem had heard all about what's going on over in Antioch. They'd heard that the gospel is producing many new believers from every conceivable background in the sin city, right? That's what's happening. 
And so what does Jerusalem do? What does the big mother church do? They sent Barnabas. You might remember Barnabas from earlier in Acts, the son of encouragement who's super duper generous, um, right on the heels of God striking some people dead for lying about their tithe and offering. Let that be a lesson to us. Barnabas. They send Barnabas to check things out. And, and, and it says when he saw the grace of God, I love that because it's like a visual thing, right? He sees the grace of God. Usually like we want to experience the grace of God in our lives. God's been so gracious to me. He's given me everything that I don't deserve. And he's been merciful. He's withheld everything I actually deserve. Um, we experience that a lot of times personally. But in this, this part of the text, he sees the grace of God. How does he see the grace of God? And where, and where does he see it at? It's something that, again, many Christians throughout the church, and especially in the Western world, have not seen because they refuse to do step one, which is to proclaim the gospel to everybody you come across, right? And to be in those kinds of relationships. In this sense, Barnabas is obedient as he is sent to check out what's going on. And it says that he saw the grace of God at work. And the grace of God that he saw at work was the grace of God at work in saving people from every conceivable background in that city. Antioch becomes like a hub at this point and from this point moving forward, just like Jerusalem, sending people to start churches and missionaries all over the place. Okay? And what's happening is people from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation are being saved. And Barnabas sees it. And the way that Luke tells us as he writes this, the way Luke describes it, he says he actually sees the visual grace of God at work. And he sees it as people from every conceivable background are being saved. And what does Barnabas do? Barnabas is like, oh, yep, came, saw, too filthy the place for me. I'm going back to give my report and get back into my little safe cocoon. And that's not what he does. Right? That's not what he does. He joins in on the work of making disciples by encouraging the disciples in verse 23, remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. And I can tell you, like Barnabas just gets it, you know? Like, I don't know how many of you have been following Jesus for longer than 15 minutes, but when you think about it, even if you've been following for 15 minutes, you know that the message you need to hear as a believer is this. Yo, remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. Stick with it because... There are a lot of seeds that get thrown out there on that ground. A lot of times that ground is a really hard ground. It's a really wishy-washy ground. It's a really divided ground, talking about the heart. And oftentimes somebody proclaims Jesus, suddenly, yo, I got saved. And then five weeks later, they're back to doing all the same crazy crap they were doing before, and they're not even coming to church no more, right? And it's like, well, I wonder what kind of heart they had. Well, it was either wishy-washy, it was cracked, it was hard, it was soft, <laughs> got rained on, wind came up, sun burned it, all that stuff. So that's the message we need to hear as believers from the point of being a new believer onward, Barnabas gets what discipleship is about. Discipleship is about saying, yo, remain faithful to the Lord. It's going to get tough. Remain faithful to the Lord. Things are going to hurt. Remain faithful to the Lord. Be steadfast. Get a purpose for your life, right? And the reality here um, is that the Lord um, blesses Barnabas' ministry as he begins to disciple new believers. The text tells us in verse 24 that he was a good man. He was full of the Holy Spirit. He was full of faith, right? And the result of his lifestyle, I mean, it could have said all sorts of things, right? It could have said, man, he was a scoundrel, but he sure did preach good. 
right? Dude was bouncing from one woman to the next, but he sure did preach good. He kept telling us to remain faithful, even though he didn't seem to remain faithful, but he sure did preach good. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit, full of faith. The result of his lifestyle matching his message, got to walk your talk, right? It doesn't just go for a guy on a stage. That goes for all of us who claim Jesus. This is what it means to be a Christian in the sin-soaked world we live in. Your life should match your mouth. The problem is, there's a problem, right? We know that. He's a good man, full of the Holy Spirit, full of faith. The result of that lifestyle matching his message is what? Look at the end of verse 24. A great many people were added to the Lord. At the end of the day, a revival began to take place in the sin city of the Middle East because Barnabas was not only faithful to speak the gospel with his words to everyone, but he was also faithful to speak the gospel through his life. Now, I get it. It's semantics. Our lives don't speak. But when you use the word spoke in a certain context, yes, our lives do speak something. Our lives say something, right? Our actions say something. Now, one of the major criticisms, and again, if you know me, you, know, you probably know I'm going to spend a good half of my time around people who are unchurched and people who are unbelieving. And you can read scores of books and look up all sorts of stats all over the place. I think this is pretty faithful, what I'm about to say. One of the major criticisms of the unchurched and unbelieving people in regards to the church is this. What I commonly hear is the church is full of stuffy, clean-cut, fanatical, nationalistic hypocrites. Those are the words common, high-level words that I hear when talking about us, okay? In other words, um, if I were to flesh that out a little bit more, all too often the image of what it means to be a Christian today in our sin-soaked world, it's the image of an uptight person who likes to wear his or her Sunday best on Sunday mornings, right? Attending church gatherings, these folks also have a tendency to freak out over every sinful thing going on in the culture at large. The image is a street preacher on a street corner, right? The bullhorn in his hand. Hell and damnation being preached, right? That's the image. <clears throat> and usually what's happening from this same group of people is that they will push a political agenda more than the gospel. You'll hear more about political agendas than you will the actual gospel. That's, that's, that's the image that the lost and the broken have of the church today. Um, I've heard so many unchurched, unbelieving people say, I can't go to church. They don't really preach the Bible. Their Bibles are just wrapped in flags. Now, I am patriotic, and you all know that. You should know. If you don't, come visit my garage with me sometime, okay? I am patriotic but i'm sensitive to the image that we project to lost people and i believe that we as believers have a responsibility to fight that and to be countercultural not just to the culture around us but be countercultural to the culture of the american church follow me don't hear me wrong there are great things about the american church i'm picking on one thing and here's the thing, you take all of that negativity that the unbelieving world believes about the church and the image of the church, and then here's the other slam dunk that's really hard to swallow. 
those lost people and broken people that you would spend time around would tell you all those things, and then they would seal the deal by saying, you know, on top of all that, here's what I see in the church. Those kinds of people for sure, and then they're just committing flagrant sins. Gossip, it's a flagrant sin, listed countless times in the Bible. Listed more than homosexuality, just to let you know. Pretty certain of that. Slander, listed more. Covetousness, listed more. Greed, listed more. Division, listed more. Spiritual pride, judgment of the lost and broken. Sexual sin, period, as a category, listed often. And these are things that Christians are known for, oftentimes. Just from a negative standpoint. That depiction, if you think about it, doesn't even begin to take into account centuries of atrocities under the banner of Christianity, under the banner of the church. Atrocities and abuses. The church itself has dished out in the name of religion. Even people that are on the Protestant side, if you're not Catholic, right, which we're, we're not, but it doesn't matter. We can't hang everything on the Catholic side of the church and say, y'all did a bunch of horrific things. We're pretty, no, we're not so good. I love Luther and Calvin, but those guys did some very horrific things in the name of the Bible. The point here is this. We need to speak the gospel with our lives in contrast to the hypocritical facade that some Christians have exuded for centuries. We've got to speak the gospel with our lives, not only with our words. Before I move on to point three, if you're sitting here, you're like, man, dude's being awfully hard on this, okay? I, it's, just, it's something in my gut that just says, I think we live at a pretty interesting time in history, okay? Without spending a lot of time on this, we, we have, in the last four or five years, I think culturally, walked through some pretty deep, hard things, and we're still in the midst of some of that. And, and when I think about my responsibility to preach to a group of people, right? I think about how can I help us think about what it means to live in this cultural time right now? What can I identify that would be maybe the most helpful to help us move forward as believers? <clears throat> and I think this, this idea of the image of Christianity that has been propped up by Satan, okay, working in and through believers and unbelievers alike, if this image that I've just described is even halfway true, and those of us that are legitimate Christians, we got some work on our hands. So that's my, if, if I can wrap all of what I set up in one aim, it's just to say that. Like, let's do some good, hard, repetitive work on ourselves. Let God clean us up. Trust Him that by faith, He'll give us the strength, He'll give us the Spirit to be who He's called us to be and to do what He's called us to do. And let's live counterculturally, not only to the sin culture around us, but let's live countercultural to maybe this American version of the church that we're part of. Okay? Amen. That's my point. Wrapped up in a tiny little bow. Third thing we notice in the text is this. We must speak the gospel with other faithful disciples. Okay, this is a no-brainer. You look at verses 25 through 26, and what does Barnabas do? Uh, he, he must have realized that the work of ministry was far too heavy for him to handle on his own. So what does he do, right? He, he goes and recruits Saul. Saul would later be known as the Apostle Paul. And they wind up sharing the ministry of speaking the gospel to all people with their words backed up by their own lifestyles. And it is precisely here in this portion of the text that as the church in the sin city of the Middle East begins to explode, 
the citizens of that church in that sin city are now called Christians. Okay? That's the moment. Now, if you do the study, you'd find, and it's quite possible and most likely true, that the term Christian was actually not a term of endearment. Not a joyful term, though believers would have believed it was a joyful term. The reality is the culture naming them Christian was most likely a derogatory term. Those Christians. So in that way, we are very similar today to then. And in fact, if you do the historical study on the early church, there were some wild accusations that were not true, that the church then had to also live counterculturally too. You want to hear some of them? See if I can remember some of them. This is just all from memory from my church history class last year. It blew my mind, right? Some of the early accusations and rumors that were going around about those Christians is that they like to eat babies. What? Why, why would that be the room? Well, because they continuously talked about a Savior who came in the form of a baby and they were going to eat his flesh and drink his blood. Okay? I mean, that, that would... And so, so the church had to combat that by living counterculturally to that. And the message they proclaimed had to be, and their lives had to, right? And they had to do that together. No Lone Ranger Christianity. Um... It's the Lone Ranger Christians that are really, really weird that you really should worry about, all right? Um, one other one that I just remembered. So yeah, you got the, the eight babies was one. Uh, the other one was that they practiced incest. And you're like, what? Do you know why? Because they called themselves brother and sister. <laughs> that, was, that was literally it. Like, <laughs> they had to combat that. And so let's just recognize that the derogatory terms and the, the derogatory accusations are not always true and have no truth to them. And in this case, they're being called Christians, and I believe it was probably a derogatory term. E either way, okay, either way. This is the term that was used to describe believers and to describe people who were becoming believers. And the text tells us this was happening on a daily basis because... The disciples were speaking the gospel in unity with other faithful disciples. Like I said earlier, there's no such thing as a Lone Ranger Christian. If you know me well enough, I love to harp on that. Um, God didn't just save you so that you could have your little cute little relationship with Jesus on your own and do your thing in your house by yourself. That is ridiculous. The Bible says nothing about that. You're reading the wrong Bible if you think you can do that. Okay. The reality is God saves people to become part of a family a church family, all jacked up and defunct as it always is because we're all sinful. I'd love to find the perfect church. And if I do, you know what the problem is going to be? I'm going to be there and I'm going to jack it up so I probably ought to leave so it doesn't get jacked up. Same goes for you. Okay. Disciples need to be made in the midst of community in the midst of gospel-centered community. What does that mean? This means that both evangelism of the lost as well as the training of the saved should be done in community. So Jesus was actually the one who established this pattern in the gospels, in both Mark and Luke, as he sent his disciples out, not one by one, but, somebody say it, two by two. Two by two. So you have Barnabas going and getting Saul. He's like, yo, bro, I need some help. Let's do this together. We are better together. Amen? Amen. So I would encourage you. Um, don't only be engaged here on Sunday mornings. Get engaged in the small group ministries of the church. Get into a men's group.
get into a women's group, get yourself a gospel community or a community group. They're not gospel communities. Somebody can yell at me right now because I've been doing this to people for a long time. They're not gospel communities anymore. They are what? Community, community groups. Thank you. Yeah. Get yourself into one of those groups. It's a sacrifice. But it's also a blessing. You got to be intentional and put it on your schedule. Then you got to show up. And sometimes you got to bring some food. Um become part of that because that is part of our disciple making strategy here you could also find two or three friends work together with those two or three friends meet up once a month or so uh, work together to establish some very relational evangelistic and discipleship strategies so that you can be about the ministry of speaking the gospel together with someone else with your mouths and with your lives fourth Fourth thing we notice is that we must speak the gospel through our generosity. And all of you have got to be like, no flipping way is he going there. Yeah, you've already pounded us enough, Joe. Can we go? No, you can't go yet. I know we're at 45 minutes. I'm sorry. We must speak the gospel through our generosity. The problem, here's the problem. When you commit to preaching word by word and verse by verse through a text, and you get to a point like this, and you're like, you know, I kind of want to skip this part and go home. Because I really don't want to talk about it either, but we're going to talk about it, okay? Because it's in the Bible. And Verses 27 through 30, what happens? You get some prophets come to the, visit the church in the sin city. First question everybody wants to ask, do prophets still exist today or do they not? Well, I'm saying in front of you when I'm preaching it's a form of prophecy, so the answer is yes. Um, are there abuses of that in the church? Especially in Pentecostalism and yeah, charismania. <laughs> I like to call it charismania. <clears throat> and they're like falling down on the ground and rolling over and... Babbling, probably not necessarily unintelligible languages, just had too much to drink last night type of thing. Yeah, yeah, there's some weird, but does, does prophecy still exist today? Absolutely. Um, we could spend a long time on this. There's books and books and books and books and books written. So when you remember that I said, yeah, of course they exist, please don't take me out of context and say, well, that means, no. We can talk about it, okay? Prophets come to visit the church in Sin City. While they're visiting, one of them stands up, foretells of a great famine coming. It's going to cover all the world. It's about to happen right now. He even dates it with a ruler's name. So that gives us a historical stamp for those of you that are interested in like the historicity of the Bible. Fascinating. So what do the disciples do? Oh, man, that sucks. We should pray for them. Let's pray that the church budget gets reached. Let's just pray that Joe gets paid and that the bills stay the way they are and the lights still. We'll just pray about that. Good for you. Thank you for praying. Get up and do something about it now, right? That's... That's what they do. They actually take up an offering. And they send it to the church with Barnabas and Saul. Fascinating to me that Barnabas and Saul are like, yo, we'll, we'll do the menial task of taking the offering and then going and delivering it too. That's, I love that. That they're willing to do that kind of a task as well. Initially, um, this may not seem very significant, but I'm sure that you already figured out where I'm at with it and how it applies to us as a church today. Just think about this. Uh, think about the fact that these Christians were living in Sin City. You're like, okay, I've heard this. I get it. They're living in Sin City in the Middle East. What do you think the biggest idol would be for them to combat as, as even new believers? You think about it. If you think about Las Vegas today, what do you think one of the biggest idols is? Could we all say greed and, and agree? Greed, right? Come here, throw your 20 bucks in the machine. By the way, I did that when I was there. So if it's a sin to gamble, I sinned. Everybody falls on different sides. It was entertaining. It was kind of fun. I threw 20 bucks in the machine. I got up to almost 400 and some odd dollars in winning. You and I did. I kept playing until I lost it all. You know how much I lost? 20 bucks. Greed. 
It gets a hold of you so fast. Yeah, everybody's like, yeah, set limitations. Yeah, I know. You set limitations when you drink and so on. Yeah, set limitations when you, I get it. Okay, but I didn't. That's my confession. I didn't set limitations. My point is what? Greed. That, I think, would have been one of the major idols of their time then would have been greed. Would have been culturally acceptable in that culture, in Antioch, to just store up some money to help themselves. But what did these early believers do? These brand new baby believers, what did they do? They chose to live counter to the culture and they practiced generosity. Now, sadly, this is not always the tale of the tape in the American church. And y'all are like, oh man, could we skip that part? No, we're not going to skip that part. Here's the, here's the reality. Typically, 80%, check this, 80% of a church's budget. Our budget is $7,000 a month. What's 80% of $7,000? Somebody, please help me. I'm not a mathematician. 5600 Okay, very good. <coughs> that, $5,600, and this is true across the board, in the American church especially, that $5,600 is covered by 20% of our membership. Get that. Not 100%, not 80%. You would think about it like if you're like, I'm a member of a church. Okay, well, you got to have some skin in the game. That would make sense. And then people are like, okay, well, I just won't become members. Okay, I get it. That's a great like, manipulative game, right? 80% covered by 20% of a membership. Here's the reality. I think the reality is that Americans are better at being greedy with God, what God gives them rather than being generous with what they're supposed to steward. So take that sentence and just put it to work. I think we Americans are a lot better being greedy with what God gives us rather than being generous with what we're supposed to steward. That should be a challenge to all of us. should be a challenge that we meet with joy-filled obedience and repentance. Okay? And here's the reason why. If you're like, okay, stop. Stop banging the drum. I'm not getting my checkbook out. You know, the funny thing is when preachers do bring up tithing and offering and giving, usually those are the, some of the biggest giving days. I actually kind of hope that maybe today wouldn't be that day, but that maybe in the days moving forward there'd be some consistency in our church family. That's what I would hope, for sure. I'd love the day when this church is sustained by its members giving. People who say, this is my church home, you're my pastor. I'd love to be able to say, hey, we finally made it because you put your money where your mouth is. That doesn't mean you need to feel guilty and get up and go write a check and put it in the box. I would actually say, don't do that out of false guilt. Go home and spend some time with Jesus. And figure out what you can be consistent at and then do it. Like, like, cause it's like, don't, don't get everybody else excited. Like, oh, hey, we had a biggest day of giving. Yeah, because I talked about it. That's why it's going to be a flash in the pan. It's going to go out next week. I've watched that happen for 11 years. So I'm just challenging you, right? Here's the reason I think Christians should be the most generous people on the face of the planet. Not because pastors need to get paid, not because the lights need to stay on, not because you got to pay building expenses and discipleship expenses. You want to know the reason why I think we should be the most generous? You want to know why I love practicing generosity personally? You want to know why? The reason is because of Jesus. If, if, if we are the ones who proclaim, as we've been talking about, the gospel of a savior who did not spare a single drop of blood or did not spare a single piece of his shredded flesh to save his enemies, then the fact that we serve such a generous savior should then result in Christians genuinely being the most generous people on the face of the planet. If a church is full of generous Christians who understand the cost of their salvation, Here's the deal. That church's budget will not suffer. 
there will not be a needy person among them. And if a church cannot tell that kind of story of generosity, then it begs the question of just how costly that church believes her salvation was. We must speak the gospel through our generosity. I think that in the American church especially, this is probably one of the biggest ones, as I've already alluded to. So, that's what we see in the text about what it means to be a Christian in a sin-soaked world. What do you think about that? Man, it's a lot to think about, right? There's a lot to feel guilty about. There's a lot to be encouraged by. There's a lot to be challenged by. And at the end of the day, if this is the way that uh, the early believers, when they were first called Christians in the largest city of the known world, where sin and evil and depravity and darkness have been running rampant, right? And their population only boasted a mere 7% of the population. That's all that was there for believers. And they were known. They, they were known for their proclamation of the gospel to everyone they came into contact with. They, they, they were known as people who spoke the gospel with their words and their lives matched it. They, 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 were, they were known to not being fanatical street corner preachers, right? They were known for their generosity. That's what was shocking the socks off everybody in that Vegas of the Middle East. That's what caused them to say, they're Christians. And the reality in all of this, I believe, is that these young believers, these early believers, they were only taking their cues from their Savior. They're taking their cues from Jesus, his, his broken body, his shed blood. That had ransomed them. That had redeemed them from their previous lives of sin and hatred towards God and had also saved them from the impending doom that was coming because of that sin. They never being radically transformed and changed. These people, I believe, had spent significant time at the foot of a bloody cross. These people had wrestled with the victorious triumph of their Savior in the doorway of an empty tomb. Their visions were locked on the hope of a promise in eternity with heaven, or with Jesus in heaven. So you think about that. Because of that image of Jesus, nothing could stop them. So you think about that as a challenge for us as we close. Nothing could stop them from speaking the gospel to all people. Nothing could stop them from living their lives in ways that adorned the message they spoke. Nothing could stop them from linking arms with other faithful Christians in community. And nothing could stop them from being generous in the midst of a culture that was suffocating under the heavy oppression of greed. That's what it means to be Christian in the midst of a sin-soaked world. And the question is, God, what do you want to reorient in each of us to get us on that pathway to being Christians in this sin-soaked world like we see in this text? Right? So I'm going to pray for us. Father, please take this message and apply it to our hearts and lives. Help us uh, to hear you in these closing moments places of our lives where maybe some reorienting needs to take place and places of our lives where you would like to step in and help us. Lord, in these moments too, show us places and ways in which you have grown us and shaped us and changed us already and help us to hear what that next step looks like. 
as we follow you, as we call ourselves Christians in the midst of a sin-soaked world. I trust you to do this in Jesus' name. Everybody said.